the song this morning. Thank you so much. I've known Darren a long time, but it's been a long time since I've seen him, and it was a pleasant surprise to be welcomed by him this morning. And then um, also I saw Darby. You know Darby's uh, one of our Calvary Baptist Association summer missionaries working with vacation Bible schools throughout the association this summer. Where is Darby anyway? There she is. And um, I saw her when she came into the auditorium this morning. I had to do a double take. Uh, she's got on her church-going clothes today. I'm used to seeing her in vacation Bible school combat attire. And um, Darby's doing a wonderful, wonderful job this summer with our uh, Calhoun Baptist Association uh, vacation Bible school and other responsibilities. I'm grateful for this privilege to be back at First Baptist Piedmont. It's been a long, long time. Uh, my last time to preach here was sometime back in the 90s, and uh, so uh, I'm surprised that you remembered. Some of you welcomed me back this morning, so I'm glad to be here. Thank, I thank God for Brother Michael for his invitation to come. The worship time has been meaningful to me this morning. My heart is set on the Lord. I sense yours is too. And you've come on this Father's Day Sunday to, to worship the Lord and to honor your fathers. My dad died six years ago today on Father's Day. So when Father's Day comes around in my life since that time, it's, it's a little different than it had been previously. But um, I'm thankful for the songs the song and the time we've had to say a word of appreciation regarding our earthly fathers. I think we're living in a time that we need to um, emphasize the role of dad in the home, in the community, in the nation, and in the world probably more than any other time in my lifetime. So I want to speak this morning for a few moments on the topic, the making of a man of God. Now, before we get into the sermon, let me say this is a gender-neutral sermon. The title is The Making of a Man of God, because we're talking about the life of David, and we're going to examine how God took him from being a shepherd to being a king, from being a tender of sheep to being a warrior. And there are steps that were taken. There was a process in David's life. But the reality is the process is the same in every person's life. The process and the principles are true in a woman's life, in a man's life, in a girl's life, in a boy's life. The principles are the same. So we're going to look this morning for a few moments at the making of a man of God. 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I think you may have the title in the text Brother Michael asked me uh, to send the outline, and I was in Dallas at the convention, and I remembered what I was preaching on, but I couldn't recall all of the outline, and I didn't want to put some kind of gibberish outline here, just calling from memory and then trying to preach through it today. So you have the title in the text. 1 Samuel chapter 16. That's in the Old Testament. All right? Here we go. Page 339, if that helps. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1, and we'll read several verses. 
And let me stop just a moment because I took my watch off and it's needed. <laughs> That's the funny thing. I left it on the pew. What about that? <laughs> so my watch is away over there. And... Um, <laughs> There's a, there's a, there's a smart aleck in every crowd. <laughs> I, I did intend to bring it. Thank you very much. All right, First Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you... To Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. That's an important verse. Samuel is on assignment from God to anoint the next king. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you. What you should do, you shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come uh, to me to the, with me to the sacrifice. And then he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was that when they came that he, Samuel, looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now that's a powerful, powerful passage. Now let's read one more brief passage uh, in chapter 17 and verse 48 through 51. This is taking us on into the story, so the picture is a little clear. 48 through 51 of 17. And it was so when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to, to meet David that David hastened and ran toward the army of the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took out his sword, drew it out, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. This is the word of God. The making of a man of God. Now when I read stories like this, this very, very familiar story 
of David. There's not a person in here who does not have some grasp of the story of David. But the remarkable thing that we have before us this morning is that we see that in a very short time, God took David from being a mere uh, shepherd boy, uh, watching over his flock, uh, his herd of sheep, to becoming a mighty, mighty warrior. David is a young man. He's a young man. He's a teenager when he kills Goliath. We are introduced to him as a shepherd boy, and very soon we see him as a mighty warrior, and then soon to be king of Israel. The question comes to my mind, how does this happen? How does a man move from being a shepherd to being a king, from being a watcher of sheep in the fields with the sheep to being on a battlefield with giants? How does a man get from point A to point B? How does a man become a man of God? These are some of the things that I want us to think about this morning because what I've discovered and what you've discovered in the life of David need not be overlooked. There are truths here that are applicable to you and to me today. The first point of this message, if you're taking notes, the first point is a question. Where did David come from? Now, I don't mean what country. I don't mean what geography. I don't mean what culture. I mean, what circumstances did David come from? What was the environment that he grew up in? What, what were the circumstances of his, of his home? What were those things around him on a day-by-day basis that the same kinds of things that are around you and me that shape us and make us? It might seem to you as you read a story like this that you think, well, David must have been a man who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. David must have been a man who had been given unusual and exceptional opportunities. He was, he was possibly and probably spoiled by his parents, and he was given protection that other people weren't afforded and opportunities that other people were not afforded and he was given advantages that other people were not given but the opposite is true David came from some difficult circumstances God is in the process now of making a man a warrior and a king and the antagonist the enemy is already on the scene now listen to what I mean by that. God is in the process of doing something in your life and in my life. You may not be as conscious of it as you ought to be and you need to be and I pray that you will be. But God is in the process of shaping and making each and every one of us into what he wants us to be. And he's going to use some unusual circumstances to get us there. Now I, I was a pastor for a long time. Brother Darren was asking me how I like being a D.O.M., And uh, I answered that, but I also referred to the fact that I was a pastor for 42 years. And I have seen so many times, so many times, people make a commitment to Christ and they, they will say, I'm going on in the will of God and I'm going to do what God has called me to do and I'm going to be what God has called me to be. And I'll see that last for a little while and, and then the fire goes out and the flame goes out and that person seems to settle down into a life of mediocrity. Why does that happen? 
It happens because any time you and I make a commitment to serve God, to live for God, to be what God wants us to be, there is an enemy on the sideline who is going to enter that scene very quickly and begin to do his damage. Some people, I'm sure, find it easier not to be so faithful in service because they have less contact with the enemy and less issues with the enemy. David's path to becoming an instrument in God's hands was not a smooth path at all. Samuel, standing there at the house of Jesse, or near the home of Jesse, had invited, and by the way, everything we read in those first seven verses was God's way of of kind of making the, the, the invitation palatable and, and making sure that, that Jesse would come and bring his sons. Uh, you, we read about the fear of King Saul and everything is done in order that they might come for a time of celebration and a time of worship. And here these boys are with their, with their father, Jesse. In verse 6 it says, And so when they had come, Samuel looked at Eliab and said, Surely this is God's anointed. This is the one. The oldest, the biggest, the largest, the strongest. All of the outward appearance. This must be the one. What is the great truth that we learn immediately from this part of the story? What we learn right away is what God said to Samuel. But do not look on his appearance or at his height or his statue. Do not look at what you see outwardly because I have refused him. He is not the king. How many of our decisions are based on what we see and how we assess what we see and what we assume, uh, how we assume to know that we're knowing the right thing about what we see and our thoughts are so far from the thoughts of God and our ways are so far from the ways of God because we have not sought the heart of God. We have sought what appeals to our fleshly instincts. God does not look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And I'm telling you this morning that sometimes God, I think he has a sense of humor because he chooses the most unlikely so often to do the greatest work. The one that we would never suspect or expect. And God reaches down and puts his hand on him or on her and raises that person up to do a great work. Well, they brought in Abinadab. God says, that's not the one. They brought in Shammah. And God says, no, I've not chosen him. And then they brought in one by one the other four brothers. And God said, no, 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 no. Can you imagine how Samuel felt? I'm on a mission from God, he was thinking, to find the next king of Israel. I've gone through seven sons of Jesse and assumed the first one would be the one, but the answer has been no. It's been kind of like standing back and saying door number one, door number two, and just hope you hit the jackpot sooner or later. But in verse 11, Samuel asked Jesse a question. This is where the story really begins to get interesting to me. Samuel asked Jesse, are these all? Are these all? Of your sons? Is there another son? Ladies and gentlemen, I beg of you to please not miss this part of the story. It is critical. And Samuel says, I do have another son. I do have another son. I think Samuel might have been thinking, why was he not invited to this event? 
I ask for all of your sons. What is Jesse's reply? I have another son. He's the youngest one. He's sitting on a rock down there somewhere on a hillside watching a herd of sheep. He's really insignificant. He's the youngest one. He's the one who is assigned to the menial task when important things are going on. He really doesn't matter. And if you're looking for a king, I can tell you right now, it won't be him. If it's not among the first seven, it's certainly not going to be number eight. This is getting worse by the minute. I want to ask you a question that I already know the answer to. How many of you have ever been made by some other person to feel useless and worthless? How many of you have had imposed upon you by the thoughts and the words and the actions of someone else a message that would convey their sense of your insignificance in their lives? there's, There's a slight nodding going on, and we almost to the person could say, I've been there. It's one thing to be rejected by another person. It's another thing to be thought insignificant by a friend. But when your father, when your own father sees you as insignificant, you are in a place of one of the deepest pains of the human heart. That's where David was. I'm telling you that he became a king. He became a warrior. He became the sweet singer of Israel. He became one of the most uh, highest historical figures in the word of God. But he did not get an easy start. And I can say to you and me this morning, to each of us, on the authority of God's word, that if you are going to go on with God to the heights to which he wants you to go, you will not have an easy start, and you will not have an easy journey. There are people in the way. David is about to begin his journey toward greatness, and he's already encountering the enemy. I I turn to Alexander McLaren. Some of you know that name. He was an old Scottish preacher and uh, wrote commentaries in days gone by. Here's what he said. God seldom shows us his choice at first. And both in thought and practice, we get at the precious and the true by the process of exclusion. In other words, God is in the process of weeding out what doesn't belong in our life in order that what does belong in our life can find its rightful place. He says, uh, and then he goes on to say, having often to reject seven before we find the some all but forgotten eight. David's insignificance in Jesse's eyes was such that his father, now listen to this, I'm going to back up and start this sentence again because I want all antennas to be up. I'm quoting Alexander McLaren. David's insignificance in Jesse's eyes. Now who is Jesse? His daddy, his father. David's insignificance in Jesse's eyes was such that his father would never have remembered his existence but for the question put to him by Samuel. That's where David is. Never would have remembered him. And Jesse's answer with it is a kind of assurance that the prophet need not trouble himself to see such an insignificant person. Now the problem with this story, as we relate it to our lives and as we relate it to people that whom we know who have experienced such a thing, is sometimes a blow like that is the first and the last. And it puts that individual off track for the rest of his life or the rest of her life. 
That says a lot about David. And we're going to see how, how he got to that place of not, of not allowing such damaging thoughts and feelings and emotions and words by his father. I don't think Jesse was intending to do what he did. I don't think that if we could have looked at his relationship with David, surely it was better than what we have seen so far. But already some of you are getting ahead of me and saying, how did he survive? How did David survive that? How did he get past that? That's a good question, and the text tells us, and we'll see in just a moment. But I, I, want, to, I want to, have you ever heard the term adding insult to injury? Well, when Jesse got through with him, guess who took off on him? His brothers. When we go on in this story, Jesse said to, the, to David, I want you to go up to the battle where the Israelites and the king and your brothers who are in the army are there facing Goliath and facing the Philistines. And take them some food and bring back a report. Do you remember how the brothers responded to David when they showed up? What are you doing here? What are you? What are you doing here? And then they said, who's keeping that little handful of sheep of yours? So it goes from, from this inconsideration of Jesse to this insolence by the brothers. And then David began to walk around saying, listen, I don't see what the big deal is. And all of you shaking in your boots, it's just a giant. He's an easy take for the right person. Why is everybody so fearful? And here this little runny teenage boy <laughs> and you can almost understand why the brothers were wanting to get back home he was saying I can take care of this guy well finally word got to King Saul and King Saul had been informed that David was young David was saying I'm not afraid of the giant and I'm gladly and will willfully go to battle if you'll just give me a chance. David was brought before King Saul. And now that we, we go from inconsideration to insolence to insult. Remember what Saul said to David? You are not a man. You are a youth. How many young people have heard that before? You can't be used by God because you're young too young the youth are not the church of tomorrow the youth are the church of today and thank God that God calls us to salvation when we're young he calls us to service when we're young and I would say to any person any young person here today give your youth to Christ Give your young years to Christ and see what a difference he will make in your life. And here's Saul's sarcasm. You're not a man, you're just a youth. But I observe something in David. And this is really the, the heartbeat of this message. He had... He had a healthy level of confidence and he had a very healthy 
self-esteem. I want to say something that I need to hear. Maybe you don't need to hear it, but I need to hear it. The only way that another human being can insult and injure my sense of significance is if I allow them to. But if you and I are standing on solid foundation and we know the source of our confidence and we know the source of our significance, you can take the inconsiderations and you can take the insults and you can take the insolence, you can take the sarcasm because your sense of worth is not found in what a man or a person thinks of you, it is found in what God says about you. David had a sense of value long, long before the royal robes were placed upon him. That is not, the, the regal robes of kingship is not what made David David. God made David David and then put the robes upon him. And if you're looking for some outward thing to come upon you to give you a sense of significance, what you drive, what you wear, where you live, where you go to school, what you have, then you have things that can be damaged and even taken away from you. But God can give you a source of significance that no one can take from you. No one. And here David is. I want... <laughs> When, when he was in this conversation with Saul, and Saul was asking him about go, going to fight the king, and you know the process, Saul relinquished and said, all right, I'm going to let you go. But what got, David, what got David to that point? When Saul was insulting him and hurling these sarcasms at him and saying, you're not a man, you're just a boy, this giant will have you for lunch. And David said something. And this is why I said at the beginning, don't forget the first part of the sermon. David said, when I tended my father's sheep. When I tended my father's sheep. Ladies and gentlemen, young people especially, listen to what I'm about to say. So often we are on this full throttle approach to trying to get up here to a high place so God can do something with us. And God is saying, no, I need you in the low place so I can do something to you and for you. And then I'll put you where I can do something through you. But I've got to do something for you before I can do something through you. And sometimes before you sit on the throne, you've got to sit on a rock. And before you are king over a nation, you have to be a shepherd over a handful of smelly sheep. You've got to do this before you can do that. And we're living in a generation now of young people who want to go from point A to point Z and not even see the alphabet in between. God is working in the small places in our lives to equip us to do the greater things that he wants us to do. Do you see that? Do you see that? So David found his solitude, his significance in God. He wrote a psalm. He wrote a psalm, it's 139. I'm, I don't turn to it, I want to read just a verse or two. It's ringing in my ears. 
He says, he, he, he penned these verses in Psalm 139, which you sometimes you need to read the whole psalm. It's a powerful psalm. For you formed me in my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. How precious also are your thoughts of me, O God. How great is the sum of them. Um, we sang a song just a few minutes ago that really conveys the message of this psalm. How great is God's love for us. How great are God's thoughts of us. How great are God's mercies toward us. If you could only see yourself the way God sees you, change your life. If you could only understand that when you were in your mother's womb, God already had a blueprint for your life. My, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, but I, my maternal grandmother was a godly, godly woman. She was a Sand Mountain, Southern Baptist, country Southern Baptist, uh, who would shout when she got happy. And had this remarkable ability of being able to cry and laugh at the same time. She had the light of Jesus in her face for as long as I knew her. Not She died when she was 92, but not very long before she died, I was visiting her. I'd been a pastor, was a pastor at the time, had been a pastor for a long time. And I did as I always did. I took her by her hands before I left. And I said, Grandmother, I want to pray with you. And pray for you because she'd done that so much for me. But I, I, would, I was holding her hands and I was about to pray. And she started one of these things of crying. And then I looked up to see what was going on. And she was, had a, a laughter about her. At the same, it was a happy crying. Have you ever seen that? You know what I'm talking about? I said, Grandmother, why are you crying? And she said something she'd never told me before. And I'm surprised she hadn't, but she'd never told me. My mother was her oldest child, and I'm the oldest child in my family. I'm the firstborn grandchild. My grandmother said, when you were in your mother's womb, I prayed two things for you. That got my attention. She said, two things. I said, grandmother, what did you pray she said, I prayed first that you would become a Christian at a young age. I was saved when I was 15. And then she said, secondly, I prayed that God would make you a preacher. And I yielded to that call when I was 17. I stand before you this morning as a result of my grandmother's prayers. David found his significance and the sovereignty of God before he was ever born. Now he's going to battle. And he picks up five smooth stones. Puts them in his pouch. His sling at his side. And he stands on the battlefield. And he tells Goliath that he comes in the name of the Lord. And he tells Goliath you have insulted the people of God. And you've insulted my God. Today's doomsday for you. And young David with a sling and a stone took down the enemy. Now I know the old story that always follows this. People say, well, 
he didn't have as much faith as you might think to pick up five rocks instead of just one rock. Don't do this now because we're just about finished in about one minute or two. But afternoon reading for you. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Goliath had four brothers. David went prepared for the whole family. When I was tending my father's sheep, that's the turning point. When I was doing the menial task, I was faithful in the menial task. A lion and a bear came, and I slaughtered the lion, and I slaughtered the bear. And what is this giant to my God? So, there we go. How does a man go from being a shepherd to being a king, from being a hymn writer, a poet, a singer, to being a warrior? By walking with his God. By walking with her God. Men, women, boys, and girls. Realize that the moment you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, there's going to be an attack on your life. The enemy is going to, through people and through subtle ways, do all he can to discourage you. Be faithful to God. Be faithful to God. Amen? Well, time's up. And uh, good thing you brought the watch back because I'm not finished. But because of the time, we will take a few moments for an invitation time, Brother Dear, and we can be getting ready for that. And I just want to say, this morning, I'm standing in for your pastor, and I'm not really sure how you do the invitation here, but I want us to sing, it is I surrender, right? I surrender all. And if God has spoken to you in a way that a public response would be an obedient response, I want you to come. You have a place here to kneel and pray. These front pews are open. You can sit down if you need to sit down and pray. Whatever God is tugging on your heart, if you're not a Christian this morning, repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and receive him into your heart. And I can help you know how to take those steps if you need assistance with that if you would come while we sing. But this is a response time, and I want us to stand together and sing, I Surrender All. Come as God speaks to you.